Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you happening across our broadcast for the very first time, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. And uh, we would be more than happy for you to join in with any uh, Bible question you have. The only standard for the questions that we answer on the broadcast, pretty simple. Just make sure it's a sincere question. And if you're looking for an answer straight from the Scripture, uh, any question you have about anywhere in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, uh, maybe uh, any issue that is going on in your life, personal issues, uh, political issues, financial issues. Uh, we would love to be able to shine the light of Scripture on anything that is raising questions in your mind. Uh, what does it mean to have a deeper and more scripturally based uh, relationship uh, with Jesus based on grace through faith? We'll be happy to give you some uh, scriptural insight into all of that. Uh, the events of the day, even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, will be more than happy to tackle anything that is on your heart and on your mind. But where we go, entirely up to you. Your questions direct the conversation each and every day. Uh, joined here by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Sean, how can uh, our listeners and viewers uh, get their questions to us? Well, if you would like to join us online, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you need proper spelling for that, feel free to join us on any of our internet venues. Our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be sent to our page where we are live streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday. If you prefer social media, YouTube is a reason for hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. However, since we don't control when or why we are taken off of said platforms or at least interfered with in some way, if there are any problems on your end, feel free to and note it is our recommendation to join us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform yet. Once again, remember the questions we will be receiving and answering will hopefully be in regard to the Bible. If you have sincere Bible questions, they will be welcomed. Sincerity means that you want to hear the answer. We're not just being given a bomb drop as a uh, attempt to stump the pastors, if you will. And likewise... Although we are eminently stumpable, yes. I will tell you that. And noting that point as well, if you want to ask us a question, make sure the substance of the answer is the Bible, not something beyond or in the realm of hypothetical. We don't want to waste time in that regard. And also noting as well, the questions that you will be asking will hopefully be in the form of questions. We'll be answering them if they are phrased in such a way where we can uh, work with them in that regard. We've got some to get to, but we want to make sure we take the time to involve God in the process and that, I think, is a topic we can clarify in and of itself. But before we explain it, why don't we do it? Let's start off with some prayer. Yeah, let's do that. Father, I thank you that uh, you are the invisible but most important guest we have 
on this broadcast. Lord, more than the guest, we want you to be the host. We want you to guide and direct our conversation, how exciting it is that you have great and mighty things to show us, which we know not, like you said in Jeremiah. And all we have to do is call unto you. You will answer us and provide us the wisdom and the insight that we need to have uh, not only a deeper relationship with you, but to be able to walk our talk in this increasingly confusing world that we live in. Thank you, Lord, that we have uh, the opportunity to be able to see your uh, wonderful spirit lead us into all truth. We pray for nothing else and nothing less, and we pray that the fruit of all this would be a, a tremendous sense of comfort and a tremendous sense of joy in your people as we see this amazing treasure we have in your divinely inspired word. We give this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, to start us off, a question from Yari, who wants to go, I guess, into the topic of the still small voice. He's uh, obviously exposed to a lot of oddballs when it comes to Christian teaching, and I hesitate to even call it that. They're teaching something, that's for sure. But they would claim, oh, this still small voice, uh, what if it's the enemy? And of course, how do you know it sounds like the enemy? Is it positive with the Spirit and Satan if it's negative? Thank you. Well, thank you for the question, Yari. Four things that I think can be clarified in that, but the first is probably the most important. This still small voice, I won't waste time in trying to think of a fancy word for it, a cliche that's oftentimes brought up as a way the Holy Spirit speaks to us is, I guess, uh, making people expect some sort of schizophrenic episode in order to have God speak to them. Well, in theory, though, I mean, there is a scriptural basis to that. It's just they didn't pull it out of thin air. But we need to make sure that's properly represented in the situation it first and only ever came up. Okay, well, why don't we uh, lay a foundation here, if you could share with us, where even that phrase, still small voice, comes from. I mean, it is such a cliche. It is all over the posters with the sunsets and the seagulls and so on. And, and in some places, it's just like, oh, did you hear from the still small voice this week? It just seems almost like something that, that happens, like the still small voice of God is going to tell you uh, whether you should uh, uh, have uh, non-fat versus re- reduced calorie when you pick something out at the store. Which is obviously what we don't reduce God to. Well, where do we see this still small voice, and why doesn't that sort of thing fit with that scripture? Well, as a quick historical background, for those of you who remember the prophet Elijah, he was the one who called down fire on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal who were popularizing not only pagan worship, but a particular form of pagan worship that involved the murder of people who don't worship the same god. His name was Baal, and during the reign of a very wicked king named Ahab, but let's be honest, the one who was in power was his wife, Jezebel. Uh, She put out a hit on Elijah, and he basically threw everything out the window and said that the entire nations fall into this idolatry, only I am left. And as a prophet of God who's supposed to be communicating God's heart as well as his words, this was essentially a final straw for him. He was not able to accurately basically uphold the same kind of standard Moses set as someone who would continuously mediate for the people, even beyond the point of no return, and gave up. Now, when God spoke to him to kind of call him back from the edge, literally in some cases, uh, he told him in verse 11 of 1 Kings chapter 19, "'Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. Wow. Notice this. That was some wind. Yeah. But the Lord was not in the wind. 
after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. So we have this procession of natural disasters accompanying the presence of God, but none of them were where God was. Right. Then we see in the final aftermath of this encounter... And after the fire was a still, small voice. Now, the significance of this is then explained to him in verse 13. So it was when Elijah heard it, not the fire, the wind, or the earthquake, the voice, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He gives his sob speech, basically. And the Lord said to him in verse 19, go return to your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. And then there would be prophecies that would follow, not pleasant ones, by the way. Right. He told him to get back to work, that his purpose was not going to be defined by his circumstances, by, but by his Savior. Yeah. And, and he also reminded him that there were 7,000 in Israel who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. Yeah, he so, wasn't the only one left. So all of his presumptions were false. But notice this. When people are expecting that still small voice, it's with the sort of attitude that you'd expect from what the fire and the earthquake and the wind were ultimately trying to communicate. And that was what? We like the big show. We like the drama. We like the earth-shaking reality of God's involvement in our lives. Oh, who doesn't? Yeah. But that wasn't where God was. Where God was, was in the what? The truth. And falling back on it, that Elijah's commission had not changed and that he still had jobs to do. So if that then was to line up with something, that would be what? His word. Not the earthquakes, not the fire, not the disasters, not the latest political scandal, not even the drama of wars and rumors of wars that we see bearing somewhat biblical significance, but not ultimately where God is. Where do our eyes point? To his word. That is where our information needs to come right. from. So when people are advertising the still small voice as if it's the fire or the earthquake or the wind, they're missing the whole point that was being made to Elijah. Fall back on my truth, not on the drama or the circumstances of everyday life that we are so easily caught up in. That's the first thing. But the second thing regarding the still small voice isn't just in its original definition, but also its application, because many false teachers, and I say that without uh, fear of contradiction, right. would advertise this as the greatest way that you can know you're either saved or that God's involved in your life. Now, just upon this passage alone, we see some issues there, because God had to intervene with a voice, basically when everything else Elijah had been given up until this point had proved off or not. It was a last resort, not a first reminder. Yeah, this wasn't a pinnacle of faith on Elijah's part. And in response to that, yeah. he, of course, had to immediately seek a successor. So if you're in that position, God help you. But the point being made is just that. It's not a positive if God has to intervene in a physical sense, and by physical, of course, hearing things isn't necessarily physical, but in the material realm. If we can just fall back on his truth, then, and I'm sure anyone here who's actually had God legitimately speak to them would know it wasn't the times that they were banging on all cylinders that God seemed to speak to them most directly. Right. It was the times where they needed that sort of intervention. And note, people will then try to set themselves up and say, oh, so if I sabotage my life enough, I'll get God involved in 
it? No, he already is. If we're going to set ourselves up for destruction... That's kind of that's, presumption, don't you think? Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, putting the Lord your God to a foolish test, yeah. to quote Deuteronomy. But the yeah. point being made is that if we set God up to fit into our preferred method of interaction, that he has to talk to me verbally, or I'm just not going to acknowledge him. That tells me a lot about your relationship. It's either coercive and manipulative, or at best, it's very superficial, that I'm only interested in him in him, excuse me, if he excites me. Yeah, and there's a third alternative there, uh, uh, and I think it's reflected in uh, some of the, the questions we get about this. It, it's also a case of bad discipleship. You know, if you're in a group where every time they get together, somebody's got some story about a supernatural intervention and God spoke to me and, you know, showed me to buy this stock rather than the other, or, you know, sell high and buy low or something like that. Uh, and, and you hear this sort of thing, you kind of get trained that this is how God works normally in the lives of people. And if you don't have a story to tell, uh, sometimes people will embellish or, you know, make things up or, or, or because they want to be seen as spiritual. They, they want to be seen as, as a healthy and strong Christian. And, uh, you know, again, discipleship works if uh, the person that you're listening to, whether it's a uh, person on uh, media, whether it's your own personal pastor in a situation like this, or you're in a small group, but the leader of the group says, oh, no, man, you got to be having these uh, personal revelations from God, and if not, something's wrong with you, you know, um, you know, it's bad teaching. So, so, so what is good teaching as far as hearing the voice of God? Jesus did say, my sheep hear my voice, the stranger's voice they won't follow, uh, but uh, because they don't recognize the voice of strangers, but he knows his sheep, and his sheep are known by him. How can we recognize the voice of God guiding us? How can we have that two-way communication with God where it's not just us in our prayer life, you know, downloading towards God? How can we make sure that we're staying on track with what he wants us to do? How can we listen to him? Well, you know, if we want to walk in the Lord's ways, uh, Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And, and I love that because the vast majority of God's will for our lives has already been revealed to us in his word. I, I heard a great analogy about this uh, that, that said, you know, Sean, if I were to uh, give you a, a birthday present, I would go out and get you a Rolex watch. I mean, a really uh, expensive watch. What would be the best way for you to say thank you to me for that? Would it be by looking at the watch or constantly asking me what time it is? Uh, you know, so you know, if we look at the word that God has given to us, uh, believe it or not, in the vast majority of circumstances, you're going to get the guidance you need right there. Uh, a favorite passage uh, that we share with people about being able to be smack dab in the middle of God's good, acceptable, and perfect will, to know his spirit and his sovereignty are guiding you, is uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where it says, this is how you tune into God and you're on his frequency. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. You know, we came up, uh, this question comes up so often, we came up with even a, a great little acrostic uh, to uh, keep in mind as far as uh, how to apply this. It's the acrostic guide, G-U-I-D-E. You want to hear from God. You want to make sure you're hearing from God. You want to make sure you're smack dab where God wants you to be. First, the G stands for trust in the Lord. 
give the situation, give your day, give your life over to the Lord and trust him with it. Trust that he does have a will for your life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. The UNR acrostic stands for understand related scriptures to what you're going through. Uh, if uh, you say, well, you know, I, you know, guys, I just don't really know the Bible all that well. How am I going to be able to find a passage that really relates to what, what's happening here? One of the things that we often tell people is take the Proverbs challenge. Uh, the Proverbs challenge, pretty easy. Open the book of Proverbs and start reading with a mind and a heart uh, that would uh, say, okay, God, show me a principle in this. Show me some way to be directed in the circumstance I'm in uh, that that lines up with your word here. You know, I, I love that because, uh, Sean, can you read very long in the book of Proverbs and not come across some things that apply to your life? Not if you're paying attention. Yeah. I mean, it's very, very practical stuff. You know, if you go, well, that's Old Testament, I'm more comfortable with the New, here's where you go. James. James has been called the book of Proverbs of the New Testament. If you can read through the book of James for any length of time and not find some things that directly point to what you're going through, you're not paying attention. Probably a little too close to home. Yeah, you know, I mean, I read the book of James and I find myself saying things like, James, you know, you really shouldn't hold back. You should really just kind of say what's on your mind. Very, very blunt. Uh, so read the book of James and see if there's uh, insight there. So understand related scriptures. The I in our acrostic stands for invest today in walking with the Lord. In all your ways, acknowledge him. God has, before the foundation of the world, designed this day. He has good works set aside for us uh, if we'll just walk in them. So invest today for the Lord. Just say, Lord, what are you up to today? I want to be a part of it no matter what's going on. The D stands for devote yourself to drawing closer to God in your day. In all your ways, acknowledge him. In other words, set your mind, not necessarily on your problem or the resolution of your problem, but how that problem and even the struggle you have with that problem, what does it mean for me to keep my eyes on the Lord and draw close to him in this set of circumstances? Maybe it's something just as simple as I'm not going to allow myself to be distracted by things that are going on. I'm going to keep focusing in on Jesus. And the E in our acrostic stands for expect guidance. He will make your path straight. He's going to get you the shortest distance between two points, you and the will of God. He's going to get you there. And he can get you there through a lot of different things. He can bring people across your path that might be able to share wisdom with you. He can bring people across your path. He might pray for you. Maybe even in that prayer, you'll get some understanding. He might show you something in, in your word, in reading his word on a daily basis you never understood before. He can even, maybe even in spite of us, sovereignly direct us and open doors and close them to get us where we need to be. But the most important thing is this, and we often say this, God's far more interested in guiding us than we are in being good guided. So remember that, G-U-I-D-E. Give your life to the Lord. Understand related scriptures. Invest today, just today, in walking with him. Devote your heart to the Lord and expect understanding. And, you know, I think you're going to find that to be a far more consistent uh, God's form of GPS than waiting around for a supernatural experience that uh, may or may not happen to people. I'm not saying God can't speak to you directly or even audibly. If he so chooses, it's up to him. But it's really funny to me how often he will arrange things in our lives so that we see that really we've got all that we need right here in his divinely inspired word. 
Which then brings us to the latter two aspects of this question and recognizing God's voice. Is it God being the positive and Satan being the negative? Believe it or not, it's actually the reverse. Let me tell you why. When it comes to the voice of the Holy Spirit, Jesus gave us an outline of what he would be here to do for believers and unbelievers. In John chapter 16, he says, When the Spirit of truth has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, sin is later explained, and this is just, again, a summary. You can read it on your own time. But noting sin, our problem, righteousness, what we need, and judgment, the fact we need to get a solution in order before we it's We need to make late. a decision, yeah. yeah. These are not the sort of things people consider good news, unless, of course, you've received it. In uh, several epistles, uh, Paul the Apostle makes the point that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but life to those who believe. So when people say, you know, that's not God, because I just, I feel so judged by that, that you would call me and my lifestyle something that he doesn't approve of. I know the voice of God, and he loves me for who I am. And you can see just how far people are taking this even today. But uh, without giving you any examples, note then the inverse. How does Satan present himself, as you oftentimes illustrated, a refugee from a Underwood Devil's hand can, or from a uh, more biblical perspective, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. light. Therefore, it is no surprise, no wonder, no strange thing, if his ministers, ministers of who? Of Satan, transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, and note whose end will be according to their works. If we look at this world and we see the ministers of Satan and try to look for, you know, the weird makeup and shaved head Anton LaVey types, you're going to maybe run into two or three, but even then they aren't really ministering righteousness. LeVay himself was just an atheist who wanted to spoof on things. But the point being made is this. When we're talking about servants of Satan, they can oftentimes show up with a PhD in Hebrew next to their name. They can seem very comforting and encouraging and popular, but it makes their teaching no less or no more a lie. And the point being made is just that. If you say, oh, I just, I hate to hear this because the pastor who told me these things about God was just so nice. Yeah, Satan is nice. He will lovingly and adoringly lure you into eternal separation from God forever, if that's what it takes. Understand he's a lot smarter than just brute force all the time. In fact, The people we oftentimes need to hear from the most are the ones we want to hear from the least, because the truth can be somewhat blunt. Now note, there's a fine line between being blunt and being caustic and abusive. There is a modicum of self-control there. But understand, all prophecy is defined by three main things, meaning legitimate words from God. Edification, being built up in knowledge, that's neutral as far as emotions are concerned. Exhortation, that can be kind of convicting because it's urging you on to do something that you probably ought to be doing. The sort of things we don't like to hear, especially when it's Saturday and you want to chill instead of do the dishes. You get the idea. Right. Then comfort. There is a time and place for it in all prophecy, but if you say, you know, I'm just not feeling the God vibe here. That's Instagram and TikTok, not the Bible. So make sure that you're a careful judge of those things, that you don't use your emotions as the metric for hearing from God. You use Scripture, and Scripture says that Satan's going to look like a good guy. In fact, the worst 
bad guys are the ones who look the most like good guys until you find out in the end where their true allegiances were. We can find out early. We could know the answers to the test before someone tries to give us bogus answers to trip us up. And if that is something that we take seriously enough, then we'll keep ourselves from these sort of, uh, I guess, time bombs of spiritual disaster of saying, well, if God's really in my life, why do I feel so terrible? A lot of people, especially God himself, when he came to this world, felt terrible in doing exactly what God called him to do. That's not a reasonable metric. Yeah. This is the difference. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to share along that line is uh, one of the, the main ways I think we can discern whether the Lord's really speaking to us is that uh, more often than not, it's a word of correction not necessarily a, a word of comfort. Uh, we like it, uh, the idea of God speaking to us in the sense of saying, hey, don't go changing to try and please me. Well, that's Billy Joel. That's not the gospel. You know, I, uh, uh, Ted Koppel gave a commencement address at Duke University. Ted Koppel was the uh, class, uh, classic uh, broadcaster, did uh, Nightline way back when. And he said something I thought was really good. He said this, we have actually convinced ourselves that slogans will save us. Shoot up if you must, but use a clean needle. Enjoy sex whenever and whomever you wish, but wear a condom. No, the answer is no. Not no because it isn't cool or smart or because you might end up in jail or dying in an AIDS ward, but no because it is wrong. Because we've spent 5,000 years as a race of rational human beings trying to drag ourselves out of the primeval slime by searching for truth and moral absolutes. In the place of truth, we've discovered facts. For moral absolutes, we've, subjected, uh, we've substituted moral ambiguity. We now communicate with everyone and say absolutely nothing. We have reconstructed the Tower of Babel, and it's a television antenna. A thousand voices producing a daily parody of democracy, in which everyone's opinion is afforded equal weight, regarded, uh, regardless of substance or merit. This was pre-internet, by the way. Indeed, it can be argued that opinions of real weight tend to sink with barely a trace of television ocean's banalities. Our society finds truth with a capital T, too strong a medicine to digest, undiluted. In its purest form, truth is not a polite tap on the shoulder, it's a howling reproach. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the ten suggestions, they are commandments, are, not were. The sheer brilliance of the Ten Commandments is they codify in a handful of words acceptable human behavior, not just for then or now, but for all time. Language evolves, power shifts from nation to nation, messages are transmitted with the speed of light, man erases one frontier after another, and yet we and our behavior and the commandments uh, which govern our behavior remain the same. The tension between those commandments and our baser instincts provide the grist for journalism's daily mill. What a huge gaping void there must be in our information flow and in our entertainment without routine violation of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, and he went on from there. But uh, what Ted Koppel was trying to say was this. Uh, when God speaks to us, let's face it, when God spoke at Sinai, uh, was that a welcome message to the people of Israel? Did they enjoy hearing God lay out the Ten Commandments? Oh, if I read Exodus 20 recently, they were terrified. Yeah, they begged God to stop speaking and said, Moses, you speak to God and we'll listen to you. So... You know, the reason I bring this up is I, I'm not saying that God doesn't speak to people. I'm not saying that he doesn't speak words of comfort to his people. In fact, the, the true definition of a real message from God, according to 1 Corinthians 14.3, is what? 
edification, exhortation, and comfort. Yeah, not either or, but but both and. But when we see like the still small voice thing of Elijah, what do we see? It wasn't God saying, Elijah, I know you've had it hard, and, and boy, you know, if anybody gone through what you've gone through, I get the ups and downs, and you know, here you saw me move in power and defeat those prophets of Baal and call down fire out of heaven for and consume the sacrifice. But, you know, I know it's discouraging that, you know, you still got Jezebel on your trail and she's saying uh, you, you're, you're going to be dead before dawn and all this. So you just you just relax and take. No, he just said, get up and get moving. You know, it almost uh, reminded me of Pastor Romaine at uh, Calvary Costa Mesa. What's wrong with you? Get back to work kind of a thing. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that God is always going to bark at us. Uh, I'm not saying that he is always going to uh, be, uh, you know, again, uh, exhorting us. But that, that word exhortation, I think, is really key. It, it carried the idea of a coach that would be coaching an Olympic athlete. Now, I've had a lot of coaches in my athletic career, and very few of them motivated by saying, you know, you might want to pick up the pace a little bit. No. They'd bark at you a little bit, and afterwards you'd find out why. You know, there was always a reason behind it, because the coach wanted the best for you. So, you know, when we talk about God speaking and uh, and what we're listening for, boy, you know, it reminds me of that old saying, Sean, there's two great tragedies in life, not getting what you want and getting it. You know, if the Lord really directly speaks to us, it probably means that we may be going on the wrong path, and if so, he's going to exhort us back on the right path. The, the best way, I think, to make sure that we are really hearing from the Lord and really uh, having a message from Him is to see it in His Word, to look in His Word. You know, let His Word be that lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And, and uh, boy, if He needs to tell us something more personal as far as how to apply the Word, He can certainly do it. We don't discount that. But you get in a meeting and everybody's kind of waiting for that still small voice and it's regular or unleaded or, you know, uh, you know, low calorie or the regular thing or, you know, uh, dairy or non-dairy. Uh, I don't think the Lord speaks to us about those sort of things. I think he gives us wisdom and understanding to make those kind of choices. But more often than not, he's going to speak to us through his word. And if uh, there's some additional detail that we're going to miss from his word, he can supernaturally direct us back to that. But I think... And Sean, I just bounced that. Do you think it happens all the time or is it rare? Oh, to our credit, I think it is rare. And that is because God has given us enough to work with. And yeah. the good news, too, is He doesn't just use His Word and uh, our capacity to understand. He can also bring people in our lives that can clarify these things. Yeah. He can bring situations in yeah. our lives where we have to apply these things and remember them for later. You can use many things. A voice would be a last resort, and yeah. that's not a mark of pride if God has to keep doing last resorts with you. And one other thing I'd add to that, some people say, oh, you know, but but I, I just, uh, you know, it's if anything's negative, it's from the devil, and anything's positive from God. Well, let's put that under biblical microscope for a second. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 11, it says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor let your heart detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father his son, in whom his heart delights. So you're really hearing from God. There may be a few of those, you know, son, this hurts me more than it hurts you kind of conversations. So there you go. That said, a uh, question from Isaiah who wants to know, will people and animals get new names in heaven? Uh, obviously, there are lots of Isaiahs, I can name two, but uh, he 
kind of would like a new name, but at the same time, he likes his name Isaiah. Yeah, it's a great name, Isaiah. God is salvation, I yeah. believe it is. Yeah. But uh, what's interesting about the new names, I don't know about animals. Uh, in Revelation 19, the horses that are coming out of heaven are still called horses, but take that for what you will in the new creation. If Maybe you, want... you get to name your horse. Yeah, well, that wouldn't change their genus. Uh, yeah. Adam's, I guess, uh, I classification. I doubt if we name them Prickly Pete, though, or... Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. The, the point being made, though, is that when if you want to know the distinction between animals then and now, it's not in name, it's in behavior, and you can read Isaiah 11 for more yeah. details on that. As far as us having new names, yeah, Isaiah, uh, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17, uh, this is speaking to the church in Pergamos. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. That's a reference to the book of Numbers. And I will give him a white stone, and a stone which uh, on it has a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, that's an odder reference for some people. There's those who provide in commentaries the idea of a white stone or a black stone, uh, the idea of being judged positively or negatively, and there is evidence in Greek culture of that, but Jesus is, of course, speaking to right. churches in a wide variety of backgrounds, uh, mostly Jews. There's some who read into it, the Urim and the Thummim, that you'll have a positive word from God for this. I don't really buy it. The best way to, of course, handle any book of prophecy, especially Revelation, is with previous clarification already made in Scripture, since the manna is obviously self-explanatory in that it's been explained. The new name, which no one knows except him who receives it, should draw your attention if you've read the book of Genesis. And what am I referring to? Well, in Genesis chapter 41, there was a interesting title that was given to Joseph when he was serving under Pharaoh as basically his vice-regent, if you will. And the name, uh, Zephnath Paneah, is my yeah. best attempt at it. Yeah. Uh, what was that name's meaning? What was that name's meaning? Yeah. Um, I don't know either. I have no idea. <laughs> and I can guarantee you, Joseph knew, but that's unique. And note, that's the hint. If this new name, which was supposed to be characteristic of Joseph's occupation, I would take that as a fair foreshadowing of things. So not just that we'll get new names, we have Jesus's word on that. But also noting this point as well, what will that name be? Well, I think it's going to have something to do with our unique relationship with God. And this is, I'm bringing this up, Isaiah, not because I just want to wax eloquent, I just want to make the point. When we're worried about, you know, that's Isaiah, he's Isaiah, that's the guy who wrote the book of Isaiah, but now I'm Isaiah, how do they keep track of us? Is this going to be a room full of Buzz Lightyears where one says Buzz and they all say yes. No, yeah. we're all going to have unique names and one that's known exclusively and intimately between us and the Lord because all of our lives, all of our relationships with God are going to be different, and that is what will be the basis of that name. I think that's the most biblically supported handling of this text. And again, there are other people who would take it different directions, but in regards to your name, as far as animals, again, Isaiah 11, Note behavior, but not uh, genus. I think Adam did a good job when he named the animals by, according to their kind. But if, on the other hand, we say, what about our names? I would look at Genesis 41 and Revelation chapter 2 and note that not so subtle, but still not concrete foreshadowing that God will have a unique name for each and every one of us. Yeah. doesn't mean we have to keep it secret, but it will mean there will be that intimacy there. Yeah, and I think that's the key word, is intimacy. By the way, uh, you know, the uh, idea of Zaphanath Panea, 
a uh, lot of different uh, translations have been proposed on it. Uh, in the Strong's Concordant, it says the God who speaks and he lives, uh, but we really do not know what that name means. Um, yeah, again, translating Zaphonath to mean God speaks or says the God seems to go along with Pharaoh's acknowledgement of the wisdom uh, of Joseph that the Spirit of God was with him. Uh, there's another meaning of Zaphonath Panea in that it uh, refers to him interpreting dreams. Uh, in uh, Antiquities of the Jews, Josephus said that Pharaoh called uh, Joseph this name out of regard for the prodigious de degree of wisdom, for the name denotes the revealer of secrets. So, you know, I guess what we're saying is uh, we really don't know. Yeah. And uh, to take that speculation, it definitely was a compliment. We know that. Uh, the name is Egyptian in origin, so that uh, tends to put a bit of a shroud over it. Uh, Pharaoh provided Joseph that name as part of his assimilation project, uh, kind of like uh, Daniel and his, his three friends got new names in Babylon, very common thing Intended to as do. an insult. But, but uh, it's only mentioned once in Scripture, and it's not explained. So the old saying, where Scripture speaks, we'll speak, and where it's silent, we'll be silent. And where that is an intentionally set up, we'll take that as a hint. Yeah, exactly. Um, here's our contradiction for the day. If you could turn to Mark chapter 16 and verse 17, I'm sure you know it already, the Zubilee will fall signs, but um, this is compared to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 through 23, Mark 9:38, and Luke 9:49. I'll take those in stride. But the contradiction in the Bible is a claim to be, and again, we copied these off of the Atheist website, atheist.com, can anyone cast out demons or only followers of Jesus? Now, we may bring this up, Peter and I, on our next rhetoric lesson, what's called a false dilemma. Right. But uh, we'll start with the definition of a contradiction. Before we go into examining any of these claims, the accusation has been made. So what is your job now? The first thing we tell you all to do is to know what a contradiction is. Right. A contradiction is a violation of the second formal law of logic. A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and cancel each other out. So if we have a definitive statement that Jesus says, only those who are physically following me, only those among the 12, or even of the 500, that are identified as physically with me, have the authority to cast out demons. Then, if we were to see people who weren't physically following Jesus, who weren't of the 12, or weren't of the 500, then we'd have a demons. problem. Yeah. Yes, because you can't have A and not A. But what happens if someone says, well, what about A and W? These can't both be true. Well, why not? They're two separate things. You've misrepresented one to be the same as the other. And here's where we get into the false dilemma. What does Mark chapter 16... Actually, you know what? Before you read it, let's make sure we're reading the uh, honest atheist here who would have no reason to misrepresent our passage. I'm speaking sarcastically. Only Jesus' followers... That is all that it says. In Mark 16, verse 17, only Jesus' followers, in reference to the question, can anyone cast out demons or only followers of Jesus? What does it actually say? It says in verse 17, and this is the New King James Version, and these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. 
So who's that in reference to? Those who follow Jesus. Okay. In yeah. a physical sense, or is he just about to ascend into heaven and it being in a moral sense? Well, he's about to ascend into heaven, but uh, seems to apply across the board. Okay. Now, let's compare that to these contradictions where we see the first one, interestingly enough, is in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. So let me read that. Verse 21 reads, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Now, interestingly enough, and to their credit, they include verse 23, but let's read that one because it kind of puts a stickler in their assumption here. And then I will declare to them, Jesus speaking, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who follow me. No. Practice lawlessness. lawlessness. Interesting. So the reason why they weren't following Jesus had nothing to do with whether or not they were casting out demons or showing many signs and wonders. Those things would follow those who believe. But note, it's also following these individuals who ultimately didn't believe. Yes. Note this point. Is that a contradiction on the basis of casting out demons? or a conflict in whether or not you believe in Jesus or not and are going to heaven. Yeah. Well, if Jesus had said, those and only those who follow me and believe will do these things, then we might have a problem. But the problem... He never says that. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is, again, a false dilemma. Let's go to their second example. This is Mark chapter 9 and verse 38, almost as fun, but uh, I think a lot easier to reconcile says, Now John answered them, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, follow us, casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. Now, they don't mention verse 39, we will, but Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me, for he was not against us, is on our side." And then goes on to note, even the smallest act of charity done in my name will not be left without a reward. So what's the common factor here? Is in his name? Yeah. Or is it following us? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then the final one, this is Luke chapter 9 and verse 49, for the sake of being thorough. This is, again, an amusing one. Luke 9, verse 49. Now, John answered and said, Master, we... Uh-oh, it's a parallel account. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him who is not against us is on our side. So not only do we have the same scenario, but an attempt on the atheist part to, I guess, perform some sneaky business, if you will. Yeah. And that is, of course, going to be a lot more common than you think. There are good claims of contradictions against the Bible that require a bit of homework. My personal favorite that requires a lot of digging is regarding the Passover day and the Passover preparation day. Which is it? And you have to do a little bit of digging as far as the Passover not being one day or one feast, but an entire weekend. That is not common knowledge. I would expect someone to read those passages and go, that looks funny to me. Now note, when it's brought up by a doctorate in biblical studies and an atheist by the name of Bart Ehrman, he knows better. 
and I know he's lying, but people who hear that on the internet, I'll give him some grace. This requires you to literally just move your mouse cursor over the verse and either read the verse if they're kind enough to provide it on a widget or to look it up for yourself, right. which is always the next thing to do. Yeah. As you saw, we went to each passage and called their bluff. We said, where is this? How is this? And is this actually a contradiction? Because if you know what a contradiction is, and you could note these don't conflict with each other in any way or shape or form, then you're not going to get caught off guard. And note, this is 98 out of 100 times you will deal with yeah. these things. Yeah, and, and the reason that we bring this up to you is uh, not just because, you know, as we've often said, we live in the last days and the end times, and uh, it's going to get tougher and tougher out there as far as people rejecting God. Uh, the church age isn't going to end with a bang, in a sense. It's going to end with a whimper, I think. Uh, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be cowed and bullied and uh, put into a corner because of their faith in God. And, and you can see it with some of the events of the day that are going on here. An awful lot of people that are distraught uh, about uh, the uh, Roe versus Wade decision uh, will say, well, it's just you theocratic Christians trying to impose your will on us. Well, nothing can be further from the truth. All that Dobbs' decision did was give each individual state the opportunity to be able to say uh, yes or no to their own standards as far as uh, the, the uh, practice of abortion is concerned. And it works both ways. Like last night in Kansas, a referendum uh, on the banning of abortion uh, was uh, pretty handily defeated. So uh, the, the interesting thing, though, is that you see a lot of people blaming Christians and saying, oh, yeah, those born-agains, they're really the problem there. And so you're going to run into some people that are kind of loaded for bear, in a sense, as far as wanting to tear down your faith and confidence in God's Word. But it's not just because we live in the last days. In the first days, uh, we think about uh, Eve's encounter with the serpent. What was the serpent's first question? Has God indeed said? Indeed, has, you know, that is the key word. And so if we don't understand how to deal with these things, or at least have the tools necessary or resource like this program uh, that you can go to to be able to settle some of these issues, you're going to get bombarded by that particular spiritual attack. And if you have the wherewithal to know what you believe and why you believe it, and be able to give a reason for the hope that's within you with meekness and reverence, you might be able to build bridges and be able to show people that faith and confidence in God's Word is a really important thing to have. So uh, that, that's why we go through these things. All right, and uh, speaking of the days getting darker, uh, there was a event in, I guess, social media circles that was brought up, and we, of course, can throw in our uh, two cents worth. There's an individual who claims to be a Christian. I won't mention their name because of reasons you'll find out here in a moment, but uh, this individual has the conviction that she, I'll emphasize that detail at least, uh, has been called by God, according to her, to strip on her OnlyFans website, which is a streaming platform largely of a pornographic nature, uh, until she's 70, and that uh, in no way interferes with her Christian convictions. Now, based on the twitching of your uh, uh, left lip there, uh, what would be a biblical, I guess, observation, if not response, to this claim? Yeah, well, uh, I would think that uh, you can make these kind of claims and say, you know, that God told me. But I, you know, I think if I had the opportunity to speak to this person, I would very, uh, hopefully, uh, diplomatically, but emphatically, uh, say uh, to uh, this person, okay, how do you feel having something and uh, this uh, media uh, 
presentation that you are making, uh, does it custom design to stimulate lust in the people that are watching it? Do you think there's some scriptures that might uh, apply to that? Uh, again, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, this therefore I say and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk in the ways the, Gen- the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, uh, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, had given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. What's that word, lewdness? Well, that would mean an inappropriate display of uh, someone's intimate parts. Yeah, a lack of shame and yeah. things that you ought to be. And to double down on the same point, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. What's the will of God for you? Well, you can go to these uh, vague half verses. Uh, here's one. For this is the will of God, your <laughs> sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, it is in reference to your body, in sanctification and honor. Now notice what's this contrasted with. You don't even have to necessarily have to know what sanctification is or the extent of honor means. It says in verse 5, compared to, not in passion of lust, like the, referencing Ephesians, Gentiles who do not know God, right. that no one should, maybe for money, take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such. Now, that word defraud, I think, is really key in understanding what is so destructive about pornography, right? Among other things, yeah. So what what is defrauding about pornography? Well, among other things, it's obviously giving a false image of what human sexuality is meant to do, not just in presentation, but in application. It produces the sort of mindset that it's a toy and its only purpose is ultimately to get a chemical or a, uh, I guess, emotive reaction out of people. That the only purpose that to finish without being crass is to experience a feeling and not anything else. Obviously, when you're doing these sort of things for entertainment, it is fully and only capable of communicating the physical act, the physical appeal, and the natural reactions thereof. But without the intimacy, without the commitment, and without the natural steps of patience and investment in a person that should and ought to follow. So when we see a culture that devalues sexuality and treats it as a toy, we're seeing people like they have throughout all of history, as those who do not see a higher purpose to their sexuality apart from anything else. It's just like food, and Paul makes this yeah, point. Food the for food the stomach, stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and yeah, the body. Yeah. The point then is the same. If we're taking advantage of people, we're utilizing these services to make money and have no mind or conscience towards the deeper issues it's producing in the minds of young men and women, God's going to be aware of those things, and God will make you answer for those things. Am I saying this woman's not saved? No, but I'm saying that everything she's doing in her life is serving not the Lord, and that's a problem, and God will call her to account for that. And if she doesn't care, well, then guess what? She will care when she sees her life in light of the holiness of God, and that's the point. Do we take each every opportunity and day to take things into our mind and into our lives, and whether that's through our eyes, ears, mouth, or whatever— to and with the mindset of glorify God or ourselves. Pornography can't glorify God, even though she would claim she got special permission because it makes her money. 
If on the other hand, we're going to take a step back and go, yes, this is an easy way out. Yes, our culture says that's her body. She can do with it whatever she wants. Well, apart from soliciting prostitution, scumbag, let's actually make sure we're consistent with this. If we go to 1 Corinthians 5 and say, this person doesn't know the Lord and has an OnlyFans, what does that mean? It means they need to know the Lord. I'm not going to ask them to quit their subscription, because there's plenty of people who've never heard of OnlyFans and still don't know the Lord. There's people who have heard of OnlyFans and do know the Lord, and that is, in fact, something that will hopefully That's overcome the over. Yeah. <laughs> but if, on the other hand, I'm going to hold someone to a standard they don't have, I'm the loser. Right. They are ultimately in judgment before God, no matter what they're doing, and I need to make sure that's dealt with with the cross. Once they know the gospel, then I would hope that they would continue to be the opposite of this woman. Yeah, and, you know, the, the question comes up, you know, is this person saved or not? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave that in God's hands, but I would say this. Uh, if you can do something that's directly contradictory to God's Word, you can do it... Uh, sin with a high hand, if you will, uh, not because you're ignorant, but because you feel like you've got some kind of dispensation from the still small voice or from uh, whatever uh, revelation you've got, uh, there's a big problem with that. If you can continue to do things that directly contradict God's clear teaching in His Word, and there's no consequence for it. You just make money off of it. You have a good living as a result of all of that. I have a word for you. Be afraid. Be very afraid, because as we talked about earlier in Proverbs chapter 3 and in Hebrews chapter 12, we were told in both sides of uh, the Old and New Testament that God disciplines all those he receives as his children. And if you are without discipline, you are illegitimate and not children. Uh, so, uh, you know, I guess two things. First of all, if this person is uh, going to do this sort of thing, and they belong to the Lord, get ready to duck, because a trip to God's woodshed, not pleasant, but ultimately it's going to be the best for you. If you can continue to do these things and there are no consequences, well then really get ready to duck, because you may find yourself at the end of the day standing before the Lord and saying that sad statement we saw in Matthew chapter 7, Lord, Lord, we taught you, you in our streets, and in your name we did many wonders and cast out demons. And they'll say, I never knew you. What? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Yeah. So I would definitely not want to gamble my salvation and uh, be a person who, I mean, is already kind of making a mockery of yourself anyway. The whole line about stripping until you're 70, I think that's pretty ridiculous too. So... Why you magete, as the Japanese would say. Uh, follow up, what would you say to someone who would say that, well, Adam and Eve were naked, so therefore pornography isn't wrong? Well, once again, we're assuming a hardened mindset of what accompanied that nakedness. What did we read in Genesis chapter 2? They were naked and unashamed. Now note, that was before God. It's not as if they ought to have been ashamed. In fact, when they started to feel shame, it was the first consequence of their fallen sinful nature. Right. Then they required clothing. If, on the other hand, we're to say, well, I'm not affected by the fall of man, I can look at someone in complete purity and not be ashamed of either my own nakedness or their nakedness. You're lying. <laughs> but if, on the other hand, you're going to double down on that sort of mindset, you can graciously, and this is why I hope you're going to be applying this, Yari, uh, just 
challenge the person and say, well, you know, there was an artist uh, by the name, you may have heard of him, Michelangelo, who did a lot of unclothed uh, paintings in his work in the human body. Sculptures, yeah. Very uh, well-renowned. And his teacher asked him, why is it that that's a common feature for you? And he said, oh, I just want to see man as God sees man. Very pious response. But then his teacher challenged him and said, but you're not God. We don't have that sort of mindset. And if we look at Adam and Eve in their nakedness and without God's heart, which we don't, then it's going to accompany with lust and shame. But if, on the other hand, we want to look at people with God's heart, we also understand that needs to be done with clothing and adequate clothing as well, because that's our state right now. Yeah. So uh, fascinating stuff from the interwebs, huh? Yeah. All right. A um, few I think we can knock out in the two minutes or so that we have left. Uh, these are some questions about heaven. Will we be able to sin in heaven? We can maybe go through these rapid fire. Yeah. Uh, actually, no. Uh, and there's a really interesting reason for that. In the book of First John chapter 3, we are told that we shall be like Jesus, for we will see him as he is. And everyone has this hope in him, purifies himself just as he is pure. One of the things we're going to share in heaven is Christ's pure nature. Uh, in other words, we are not going to have an inclination to want to turn away from God. We're not going to have an inclination to want to exalt ourselves in rebellion against God. We are going to be able to purely receive and relate his love. And so, no, uh, just as Jesus had a human nature, and Jesus was certainly tempted in that human nature, but never gave in to that human nature because it was perfect. So we will share that same nature in heaven. All right. Will we be able to recognize loved ones? Yes. An example of that in action were the glorified forms of Moses and Elijah. Peter, James, and John had never met them, yet they were able to recognize them by seeing them. I'm sure that's the same Immediately. case for people yeah. Yeah, that we uh, did know in this life. Uh, are people in heaven watching us? Uh, some people infer that to Hebrews 12 and verse 1, but that's more in reference to the previous the chapter. The great cloud of witnesses. The big question is, what are they witnessing? And I think they're witnesses, rather, of Are they faith. witnessing, or are we witnessing them? Yeah, and uh, understand being in heaven, by definition, is being with Jesus. I'm sure they're much more enamored with him. Uh, Time for one more. Yeah, I'm trying to read here. This is kind of chicken scratchy. Uh, will we still be married in heaven? That's easy. Yeah, we will. We're, we'll be uh, married to Jesus. We'll be part of his bride. And don't worry, your relationship with your spouse, no matter how great it is, will only be better there because you can receive and relate perfect love. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.